and welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Glanville. Mike tried his coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny Jason Stark <laughs> is against humanity. Take away the human elements of Starkville. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for The Athletic. As always, I'm here with my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, Distinguished former major leaguer Doug Glanville. And Doug, baseball may find itself in a dark place, but I am about to get a promotion that could require you to refer to me in a whole new <laughs> respectful way. Uh, are you ready to show me the newfound respect that I have clearly earned, my friend? Well, I'm already suspicious this might involve a Twitter poll of followers, but I'll, I'll withhold judgment at this time. <laughs> hey, look, hey, I'm going to reveal what I'm talking about momentarily when we bring in our friend Ken Rosenthal for an update on the grim state of our favorite sport. But uh, Ken's not our only guest on this special edition of Starkville, uh, because we're also going to talk with Tori Hunter who can reflect on this labor mess from his own experience. Uh, but Tori also was in the news just last week because of a story involving a team he never played for. Uh, we'll explain that in a few minutes. But first, let's welcome Ken Rosenthal. Ken, you're back again. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm taking up residence in Starkville. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to like get an Airbnb yes. or something. Uh, Ken, we're going to delve into the state of baseball in a moment. But before we get to that, it's time to reveal the results of the most important Twitter poll in Twitter history. Uh, it took place over the weekend. It was posted by our good friend John Greenberg of the Athletic Chicago. Here was the question he posed to the Twitterverse. Who do you think should be the commissioner of baseball? Here were the choices. Ken Rosenthal, Jason Stark, Theo Epstein, and Ozzie Guillen. Okay, so 15,547 people voted in this poll. Yeah, nice. the vote turned out this way, boys. Theo, 28%. Ozzie, 21%. Ken, 19%. You guys doing the math in your heads? Uh, and now yours <laughs> yes. truly, a resounding uh, drum roll, please. Do we have any drums? Do we have any trumpets? Trumpets. God, we are so low budget. Okay. <laughs> yours truly, 32%. 32%. I won the Twitter poll. So, boys, and resoundingly, resoundingly, exactly, wow. resoundingly. Now, this being Erica, of course, I'll challenge the election and whether the polling was done. <laughs> but you know what? Hanging chads, will, hanging chads are out there. Ozzy would have been my first choice because he's Ozzy and he's crazy. <laughs> what? But in terms of taking care of the sport and bringing it to a better place, the public made the right decision. 
<laughs> the, the public, like by it. which we mean the people that voted for me. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and in fact, in fact, Jason, I would suggest this: that if we could take the results of the poll and implement them immediately, <laughs> it might be benefit the yeah. sport of baseball. <laughs> oh yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be a fun week for me. Um, I have oh, a couple yeah. of questions. Uh, first off, Ken. Where does this rank on your list of most humiliating defeats? Not just finishing last, but losing to the likes of me. <laughs> Jason, I'm going to take the approach that I always take in matters such as this. I'm going to say it was an honor just to be nominated. <laughs> That's your story and you're sticking to it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, we'll go with that. All right, now this is to both of you guys. Uh, do you want to call me Mr. Commissioner from now on or just Commish? Your Highness. <laughs> huh. yeah 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 we need we need to go like royal yeah i like the royalty level <laughs> sir sir stark a lot sir stark a lot i don't know <laughs> uh, it's got a ring to it but I, I, i'm gonna have a hard time if you're gonna call me sir stark a lot all right I, i'm sorry i brought the whole thing up um I, honestly i have no idea what happened here uh it might have something to do with a super pack formed hastily by a certain <laughs> wife of mine Friday night, but enough of that. We have way more important matters to kick around. Um, Ken, for a couple of weeks now, we've been clinging to this hope that Major League Baseball and the Players Association would not drive this sport off the cliff and that they'd find a way to make a deal. So, of course, on Saturday night, they drove off the cliff anyway. So now I guess the best case scenario is they implement a shortened season of 50, 54 games, something like that, but with no expanded postseason and even worse, no sense of cooperation or common purpose. And the best evidence of that lack of common purpose is the players saying, okay, tell us where and when to report. And the owners responding to that by saying, oh, wait, you need to sign this waiver that you won't blame us if you get sick. And also, you'd better promise not to file any grievances. Wow. So should anyone feel good about having these negotiations turn out like this? Jason, I don't know that anyone can feel good about this outcome. It's simply not a good outcome. But at the same time, I expect fans to embrace the sport again as they normally would. Most fans. I'm sure a few are, will be disinterested. But the excitement over a shorter season that will come to the fore. People will start worrying about their teams again, whether the schedule works against their team or not, and all of these different things. Now, that said, though, there is an underlying tension that remains, an underlying problem of playing a shorter number of games than what could have been, I don't know, an 80-game or even a 100-game season if they had gotten it straightened out sooner. So the sport definitely – suffered a blow here and did not prove to be as good as it could have been. Did not take advantage of the opportunity that Jason, you and I wrote about, I believe in April in excitement. Yeah. We wrote about the possibilities of this kind of season, the experimenting could, that could take place, all of the excitement that might've formed and that's all lost. And instead we're left with the possibility of dueling grievances. We're left with sour feelings on both sides and we're left with, a lot of fans who have been turned off by the conduct of all parties during a time in our country in which there has been a health crisis, an economic crisis, and even a social crisis resulting, of course, from the murder of George Floyd. 
Yeah, I think it, it's, it seems so obvious to people like us that a deal would have been a way better outcome than this. <laughs> so uh, my next question is, why are we here? You know, in, like in retrospect, are we sure they're even trying to reach a deal? I, I want to remind everyone of the Groucho Marx song from Horse Feathers that sums up these negotiations. Mayor, hit it. <laughs> No matter what it is or who commenced it, I'm against it. There you go. <laughs> Maybe Groucho should win the next Twitter poll. Um, you know, these were really strange negotiations because they didn't actually even meet that much. They did write each other a lot of letters. Um, you know, we compare this a lot with the negotiations in 94 that led to the cancellation of that World Series. But I'll tell you one more reason that this negotiation reminds me of that one. After a while, it became clear that those weren't real negotiations either. I, I felt like it became obvious as we went along that the owners back then were trying to reach a stalemate. Why would they do that? So they could try to implement a salary cap. Now, there are obviously going to be grievances coming now in the wake of these negotiations. So... Ken, I mean, you covered this start to finish. Is there any chance that was always the end game? I'm not sure, Jason. And it's certainly a fair question when you look back now at how this played out. The players were insistent on getting their full prorated pay, 100% of the per-game salaries that they agreed to in March. And the clubs, the owners, Major League Baseball, never made a proposal involving full prorated pay. And I've often said these two sides appear to be speaking different languages. Never was that more true than in this case. To me, once it became clear that the players were insistent on 100%, and that became clear pretty early in the process, then the offers I would have made would have been along those lines. Now, maybe they were for 55 games at full prorated. Maybe they were even lower. That's fine. But at least get on the same page, and they never did. Baseball kept offering the salary cuts that the players insisted they would never accept. And basically, they were talking through each other and not to each other. And that is why we're in the position we're in. Yeah, you, you, I mean, you, you wrote a column a week or so ago, right? Like just laying out your own proposal, 72 games, full prorated pay. And the thing is, you, you spelled out all the other benefits economic and otherwise, that could have flowed from just that. And there was never an attempt to go there, right? There was like, they spent the entire negotiation arguing about the same line in the sand, 100% or not. Nobody ever wanted to cross that line. And I think that's why we're here. It, it, it's raised a lot of questions. Uh, speaking of which, Doug, I know you have questions. Yeah, I mean, I think the... Um well, you're just talking about the difference between the two quote-unquote sides, and I would like to see them as partners. Uh, you know, it's structural is one of it. Players will fight to the death of anything that relates to something that could be construed or is a salary cap or some discount. And they've made the argument that, well, for non-essential, and this is entertainment value, why should we take, a you know, sort of some sort of reduction? And I think from jump, they're always concerned, and this is the history when I was directly involved, about the structure. What are we building on and what is going to create precedent going forward? Now, it seems you know, very narrow, and it is narrow-minded in the sense of 
you know, looking around us, what we're facing with unemployment and health crises and everything, but the non-essential component, it gives them some bandwidth to say, well, this isn't a necessity and we, we want to, you know, create a, a structure that we want to work towards going forward in 2021. And the owners just seemed like they were working off of a very bottom line approach. Like, here's the number we're willing to outlay. This is it. This is the number. And they've known that from from jump. And they've kind of played this sort of game. I don't know if so Andrew McCutcheon on on Twitter talking about, I think it was Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or something, that had uh, you know, him talking about potty training a kid <laughs> and just sort of saying, I'm going to give you juice. And then as soon as he accomplishes his goal, he's like, oh, no, here's water. Oh, here's water in a different kind of cup. Here's water in a mug. Here's water in a, you know, it's like you're you're offering the same thing with different packaging. And, you know, I think that's what dragged it out. So they may have had some, you know, structure around it that they said, this is how we're going to do it. And this is how it's always been, unfortunately. They just went through 25 years of labor peace to make it happen. <laughs> so I guess my, you know, roundabout way of what I posed to Ken or ask Ken is that, you know, uh, given this history, you know, how much do you think that what happens in 2020 stays in 2020 as opposed to sets sets up 2021? The lesson of 2020, Doug, to me is that nothing is in isolation. If this had just been in isolation, maybe both parties could have treated it as an exceptional circumstance and not viewed it as reflective of the past or predictive of the future. Instead, as I've written, they're trapped in their histories and they're trapped in their relationship, which of course is dysfunctional and they're kind of unable to escape. It's like a bad marriage and a bad marriage that you keep the, together for the sake of the children and it's never a great idea, right? I know it's not a perfect analogy and people can point that out, but I believe everyone knows what I'm saying. And if you ask going forward what this means, it's not good. They could not reach agreement. And because of that, now you wonder just how the CBA negotiations, a much larger, broader portrait of the sport will play out. And I can't imagine them playing out very well. So we'll see in time what exactly goes on. And remember too, the landscape of the sport is changing. It's changed due to the pandemic. We don't know, of course, whether we'll have fans in the stands at full capacity this year. It certainly appears the answer is no. We don't even know if we'll have fans in the stands at full capacity next year and if fans will be willing to come to the games as they were once before. Once we have a vaccine, perhaps. But right now, it's hard to kind of see things playing out the way they did just a year ago. So to me, it's bleak. And it's going to be really difficult to imagine these parties coming together in an amicable reasonable way when that's not been the description of their relationship at all. You think? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the, I mean, that's the issue here is, uh, all right, they couldn't get this done in this moment in time. And it got much more humongous stuff to try to negotiate over the horizon. It's frightening. It's frightening. Um, you know, I, I mean, I've alluded to this. I, I, I kept writing columns pleading with everybody not to plunge over that cliff. Apparently, they weren't aware I was about to become the next commissioner because they, they did anyway. But, you know, it, it, I was interested to hear you say, Ken, that you think people will 
go back to following the sport the way they always have? Because I'm not convinced of that. After those columns, I heard from a lot of people that, that I know who I've always thought of as loving baseball who said, God, they've just, they've turned me off. I really don't care. Yeah. But Jason, we heard that in 94, 95 too. And the sport rose to greater heights than it ever had achieved previously. So yes, I do expect that short term, there'll be some disinterest, particularly in a season with an asterisk, but the game does regenerate itself in part because we all love it so much. So I do expect over time, not right away, perhaps, but over time that the fans any that were lost during this situation will again slowly come back to the sport. Well, I'm like, I, I, I want to debate you a little bit on this because I, I'm not sure, you know, I've, I, I've said this a lot that um, after 94, 95 people did come back to baseball um, part because of Cal Ripken and part because of McGuire Sosa home run chase Um in part because it is a great game, but I, I think there was lasting damage done. As much as they were able to make money, but there was lasting damage done to the, the game's place in the American culture and the American soul. And I, 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 I I've even been hearing from people in the game since what happened Saturday. People who are angry and frustrated and sad and worried and. Because of that, Saturday felt to me and to them like one of baseball's worst days in modern history. Um, I mean, you covered baseball for a long time. How dark a day was it in your view that that was how this ended? That's a difficult question for me to answer because when you're covering something like this, Jason, and you know this, you're in the middle of it, not in the middle of the talks, obviously, but just reporting on it, and it's kind of hard to pick your head up and have that perspective. It certainly was not a great day. And it was a day that reflected a breakdown in this relationship that we all could see coming, but never maybe thought it would reach this level. It's just to me, it's just to me a situation where it's not like the cancellation of the World Series. It's not like the players going on strike. It's just a moment where the sport blew an opportunity. And that's what bothers me the most. I know I said that before, but it, that is really the thing that bugs me. It could have been the first sport back, could have had a month head start in the NBA, could have come back on July 4th with all these, with all this fanfare and all this excitement, and that didn't happen. That realization, when that hit me, that was the dark day for me. That was a week or so ago, I guess. But yes, this is not good. And when you rank dark days, this certainly is in – the top 10, top 20, you definitely would put it there. Hey, Stark Villians, Evil Mayor Cam here to tell you about our pallies at Hawthorne. Hey, there's never a poor time to smell good, especially during a time like this when we're all inside the house and maybe we don't care about our hygiene as much. But that's where Hawthorne comes in. Take Hawthorne's quick two-minute quiz and they will give you a personalized list of grooming products. For me, my colognes are Pretty gnarly, actually. I have Fresh and Aquatic as my work cologne, and for my play cologne, which, you know, is when you go out and you go party, go to the clubs, which 
probably isn't happening right now. So maybe when you go to the pantry to grab some Cheez-Its, it's aromatic and woody. And also, I have a moisturizing body lotion for my elbows, but don't tell anyone about that. And Hawthorne's also great for a Father's Day gift because no one wants a uh, smelly old man, and I'll probably get it for my old man because uh, he's kind of smelly. So make sure to use Hawthorne and find your better smelling self. Check out Hawthorne at Hawthorne.co. That's Hawthorne with an E, H-A-W-T-H-O-R-N-E, and .co, not .com. Hawthorne.co, and use the promo code ATHLETIC to get 10% off your first purchase. That's Hawthorne.co, and use the promo code ATHLETIC to get 10% off your first purchase at Hawthorne.co. Yeah, and and guys, I mean, it's, you know, thinking about, as you mentioned, Ken, the opportunity, the great opportunity that's missed when you have this this tension amongst your partnership. Even going forward, you think about the chance of resetting fans to say, okay, might be a little disgruntled, but they got it done. And, you know, okay, we're going to play ball. The way you then move forward is how you, you leverage that partnership in this way to bring people together around it. You know, and if you have this strain, it's hard to see, you know, Commissioner and Tony Clark kind of walking out on opening day and just doing something harmonious. You know, you just, yeah. you, you feel that tension, right? And and so that's where it starts to get deeper and deeper because it, it creates this, you know, lack of a cohesiveness at a time that you need it. You need to display it more than ever about the importance of coming together. And, and you know, so yeah, if you have a 98 type season, something remarkable you know, there's certainly going to be fans that may reset around that. You know, first game back, there's all these great stories. The players are going above and beyond to make sure they engage, whether it's social media or some way. You know, you might have some you know ways to slowly bring back. But, you know, you know, I, I think of, you know, years at ESPN and time you always recognize you know, NFL, NBA, and then then there's sort of baseball. You know, it's like, and that was not the case for so long as baseball was a, that national pastime. So. It's one thing to get back to revenue, making money. It's another one to be like, as, as you guys said, the the soul of the country, and no better time to do it when you could be quote, the you know when you could be the boys of summer, right? And and you could be in a position to be the only game in town. And now that that opportunity is fleeting at best. I go back to nine eleven because that was a very similar situation in certain respects. Obviously, not the same type of thing, but the position of the sport to help the country heal, if a sport can even do that, was similar. And the sport played a great role in that. And some of my fondest memories covering this game were from that time. Not just the Piazza home run, but Sammy Sosa running onto the field with the American flag, the 2001 World Series, and President Bush threw out the first pitch. We saw very clearly what this sport can mean to people. And again, here was the chance. Here you were, a sport that has, as Doug mentioned, gone backwards in the last half century with regard to its position in the nation's culture. Here was a chance to at least creep back a little bit, and no one on either side saw that sufficiently enough to push for a deal. That is a shame, and that is a dark day and a dark moment in the sports history. Yeah, and that's exactly why it felt so dark to me because it made me think of what's ahead. What's look nobody's nobody loves baseball more than me. Right? Nobody's more optimistic about life in general and baseball in particular than me. And I don't see a reason to hope for better times. Uh 
Okay, Alex Bregman tweeted at me uh, on Saturday night after I was tweeting about this very sentiment and said, hey, we still have great teams. We have great players. We're going to play. Uh, great things will happen. Great things will happen next season. Um, okay, I, I, I agree with that. I, I'd rather them play than not play. But think of the picture we've just painted. What's the reason for hope? Who is the Cal Ripken going to be of this scenario? And I just can't try to convince me that this set of leaders can find a path to a common purpose on any topic. I'm not convinced by that. No, I'm not convinced by that. And Jason, the question you raised is entirely fair, particularly because there will be economic fallout for the sport from what has happened here in the pandemic in general. And of course, we have the CBA negotiations next year. And Peter Gammons, our colleague, has written, this is at least a three-year recovery for the sport. So all of your concerns are valid. And going further, the inability of the sport to put a more entertaining product on the field in recent years and agree on that is another issue that they have failed to address. But my point would be, in 95, when the strike ended, yes, we had Cal Ripken to look forward to. We all knew the date, and we all knew when he would break the consecutive games record. We didn't know Sosa and McGuire were coming. And as Alex Bregman pointed out to you, there's still a lot in the game to recommend the game, the players, the teams, the passion, all of that. And I do believe we'll get those moments again. I'm almost certain of that. The question is, as you kind of raised before, how many people have you already lost? And how many people are just going to say, I don't have the same passion for it that I did before. Maybe they'll be interested, but not in the same way. That's a concern. And that concern only will grow if we have a lockout, which I would say right now is a pretty good bet mm -hmm. on December 1st, 2021. And again, when you get back to the question of leadership, do you want these guys negotiating it? The same guys who just couldn't reach an agreement on an agreement that they made in March? No. Well, I think if like, uh, it, well, the thing is, I, I try not to underestimate baseball, right? In the sense of, yeah. wow, you know, you just, like you said, you never saw 98 coming. And even though later it was you know, had a taint to it, uh, that was just so transformational. And, you know, I don't know if like the flying squirrel hits 400 or 450 and, you know, 40 <laughs> games, you know, if that does the same thing. <laughs> but, but you know, there's uh, there's all these possibilities. And baseball is kind of built on heartache. There's, there's something about baseball. It's like the sad love song. You know, you kind of have it and then you, you were so close and the crescendo and the disappointment. And they've kept that consistent throughout their labor negotiations through time. It's, it's a heart-wrenching game in that respect. And, uh, but it has this incrementalism to it that you're like, okay, you know, maybe this will do something. Oh, I'm kind of paying attention today. And uh, so I think I understand what Bregman is saying. But, the, you know, we also recognize that once you do get back, whatever that is, it's a couple factors. One, you might have to do with LeBron James playing in the NBA Finals or something. That's, that's going to be 
maybe a lot more interesting in some respect. Uh, you have, you know, you, and you have the resolution of sign stealing and all these other issues. Uh, that's that's also going to play a role. So they start up. What happens? They, they're going to have to talk about how we handling sign stealing. That's going to be ten days right there, two weeks. So it's it's not going to be. They they needed more time to play to weave in some of the things that were unresolved from last season that people are upset about when it comes to the integrity of the game. And the shorter that time is, the less they are going to be able to get away from it, and the more it's going to be more of a focal point on what already is a disappointingly short season. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, you know, Doug, you've used the word partnership a lot here, and somehow baseball has to get to a sense of greater partnership between owners and players, the people who run the game and the people who play the game and the people like us who watch and care about the game. That's the goal. I don't know how we get there, but that should be the goal to me over the next couple of years. Luckily, we have a great sense of partnership at the athletics. So we keep forcing Ken Rosenthal to stop by Starkville every week. <laughs> but so we appreciate that. Uh, read Ken. Uh, he's written some amazing, amazing stuff lately. Read his columns, follow the news, follow him on Twitter, but we're going to let him go. Uh, Ken, so much happening out there today. I know we can count on you to be on the scene. Thanks again for this emergency visit to Starkville. All right. Thanks, guys. See you, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Oh, geez. Father's Day is right around the corner, and I don't want to give my dad another boring gift of, I don't know, a, a drawing that he can put on his fridge or a wrench that he'll, you know, toss into his toolbox again. Oh, wait, a convenient ad read here for Dugout Mugs. And guess what? Dugout Mugs was actually started in a college baseball dugout hence the name. And what they do is they turn a barrel of a baseball bat into a 12-ounce mug for you to enjoy any delicious beverage you want from it. And guess what? Dugout mugs are also licensed by Major League Baseball, so your favorite team can be laser engraved onto a birchwood baseball bat barrel mug. It's a perfect gift for a big game, and hey, you don't even have to drink from it. You can just put it on display. Put it on the mantle. You know, it's probably better to put on display than that drawing you drew when you were five or six years old that's probably in the trash right about now. It's an extremely unique gift for a baseball fan, and it's also going to be the perfect Father's Day gift. So, go to dugoutmugs.com slash theathletic and use the promo code MLB30 for 30% off your first purchase. That's dugoutmugs.com com slash the athletic and code MLB 30 all one word fill that baseball void with your very own dugout mug today now it's time to welcome in our very special guest Tori Hunter a man who played 19 seasons in the major leagues most of them as a human highlight reel in center field uh, Tori is now a special assistant for baseball operations for those Minnesota twins Tori Welcome to Starkville. How are you, my friend? All right, man. I'm glad you invited me to Starkville. It sounds like a place that, you know, it's kind of secluded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you won't find it on a map. That's for sure, so. Definitely. It's a, it's a secluded place, and uh, I'm just honored to be here, man. I appreciate you inviting me. Well, it's awesome to have you here. Uh, we, look, we got so much to get to with you, but it's hard not to start with the state of baseball in 2020. And Tori, you're a man with kind of a unique perspective on this. Uh, you're a great player for a long time. You're one of the faces of the sport when you played. Now you work in a major league front office. So as you look at where we are, negotiations that went nowhere, 
uh, you got the commissioner about to implement a schedule in the range of 50, 54 games. Tell us what you think this outcome to these negotiations is saying to fans, to players, and to people who work in baseball. Oh, man, it's, it's no one definite thing that's going on. It's just a whole whole bunch of things that are, are probably going on on both sides. Uh, if you talk about the owner's side, uh, I don't know if they have shareholders or anything like that, but uh, with their TV deals, they're getting paid. And, you know, if you talk about, I think it was starting off at 50 games. I think, what did they get to, 72 games or something like that? So that, The um, owners, yeah, their, their largest proposal was 72. 72 was 70, 70%, well, right? Uh. Yeah, and that was the most that was the most recent proposal. That's correct. Because they were actually right. more than that, obviously, at one time. Right, right. So um I, I don't know what happened when they, they took it back, but at 70%, I mean you I look at the player side and you can see where um you talk about those players who are gonna not have a team next year. They're gonna be free agents. And the way the free agent process is going lately, you might not even play. Um, and you yeah. talk about some of these guys that might go back to AAA and might not even be in baseball again, but this is their only opportunity to make that 550K or whatever it may be the minimum is. And if you talk about 50% or 70%, these guys see 250. Then they go, um, you're going to see half of that because you got to pay your agent, pay the taxes, pay your place to stay. And, and your family can't really come with you because of COVID-19. So, you're paying for a place there. And before you know it, that kid um, that was in the major leagues trying to stay in the major leagues or may not ever get to the major leagues again, uh, he's down to $90,000 and never play again. So these players are kind of fighting for those guys. We look at the Trouts and we look at uh, Bryce Hopper. It's not that many guys that make that kind of money in the, big, in the game. So everybody's looking at those guys and not looking at the ones that they're fighting for. To, to, so they can keep their contract. So I see the players' side of those things. That's why they want the prorated rate. Uh, I know April and May and June, they're done. If they go in July, August, September, uh, you can prorate whatever they were going to make. That's understandable. But if you take half of that or 75% of that, you're actually taking away from those guys that other 60% or 70% of the players that don't make that type of money. So um, – uh, that's what they're fighting for. And I understand the owners as well is trying to really uh, keep that money in their pocket. Uh, I know they hadn't opened their books or anything like that. Probably never will. If I was them, I wouldn't do it. Uh, but, um, and I understand their side because I have a, a restaurant. I have a business side uh, to me and I understand what they're trying to do and what, you know, that's part of negotiation. So um, I know we have the collective bargaining agreement, not we, but the players have the, collective bargaining agreement uh, up this year. Uh, so I, I just, I think if they fold right now, it kind of shows the the owners that you guys can't stick together or you, you give in. So they, they might try to ask for the world during the collective bargaining agreement, like uh, salary caps <laughs> and different things like that. So these guys got to stick together and hold their ground. And I think that's what they're doing right now. Well, they, they definitely stuck together. Just, Look, you, you know, you've been in the game a long time. You 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 were not in the big leagues during the 94, 95 strike. You were in the minor leagues. But look, right. you've, been, you've seen so many of these baseball labor negotiating stories that go this way where they just can't 
find common ground. Uh, you know, I've heard from so many people, Tori, who were just so frustrated by this, mad, disappointed, sad. But mm-hmm. it's it's just frustrating that the that there's no partnership. Like if you were a commissioner for the day, is there some way we could ever achieve a partnership between players and owners? Man, <laughs> I, I agree with you. I think we should have a partnership with players and owners uh, because if you're divided, you, you're going to go different ways. But it's hard to – if you're an owner and you own the team, you're going to have a different different perspective on the player who's on the field. You know, of course, you work for the, the owner. We, we know that. But sometimes some owners can use you. And they, you got to have some kind of union, something that protects you. The um, uh, umpires have a union. Um, um, steel workers have a union. Um, police officers have a union. Everybody has a union to protect them because sometimes they don't get protected. And uh, and I think that um, baseball players got to have one because at one point they were used. And when they got a u- union, you, you have more benefits. You have uh, pension plans, you had better insurance, you, all those things that people can't see. They see the dollar sign, but it's things for the retired players. You're fighting for them to get more pension and you get better insurance and all these different things that most people can't really quantify, don't want to quantify or analyze. Uh, and that's what those guys are kind of fighting for. So um, it might be a little divide, but I would love to see those guys uh, get on the same page sometimes. But Hey man, I was a player, and that's all I ever been, and that's all I know. So uh, I'm on their side. <laughs> well, and Tori, I mean, you know, I guess one question. I know we were on a giant conference call once uh, to talk. I think I think you were the one who t- it was during the A's streak when they had that big winning streak, and you, yeah. you said something. Are you guys planning to lose anytime soon? <laughs> he said on the call. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> those guys were hot. You talking about that? You won twenty yeah. in a row. Yeah, twenty exactly. <laughs> Yeah, but you know who you know you know who shut that thing down, right? Who's that? The twins. The twins. Oh, you broke it up. Okay, so <laughs> we I, shut it down. You were predicting the future then. Um, yeah, we, we shut it down and shut the, that twenty game uh, winning streak down, and then they made a movie off of them. What was it? Um, oh, money, 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 ball. money ball. Yes, they made a movie off of <laughs> Oakland A's, and we beat them twice. We shut their twenty game that same season, shut the twenty games down, and then. Uh, in the playoffs, they have the big three, Motor, Hudson, Zito. Yeah. Everybody said twins are going to lose. <laughs> yeah. We destroyed them, and and we won, and and we didn't get a movie. No, so, you gotta get, you who gotta played you in that movie? I forget. <laughs> well, I don't know. Some some guy, he was a lot bigger, man. I, I was ripped then. I was ripped. <laughs> Denzel Washington or something. Yeah, it might have been. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So and it, so in those days, you were well. Were you the rep for your team at any of those years? Were you the? Yes. Okay. I was the, I was the rep for for my team for many years in Minnesota. Yeah. Um, and I was always on those calls and and always trying to figure out the, our next move and try to implement um, uh, some of the things that we were trying to implement it to the players. I had to relate it to the players. And um, we called meetings yeah. uh, half the time. So I remember all those things. And you, if, if you got a great player rep and, and he can articulate um, to, to the players what they're trying to uh, accomplish, I, I definitely think that um, 
that works out fine. If you got a bad rep, I mean, you can't really understand what's going on. And, you know, you go out and say something in the media that the, the owners want to hear, it can destroy everything. So your, your player rep really represents you. He's like the vessel coming from the players' union uh, to get to the body of the players and, and try to implement the plan that we're trying to implement. Yeah, and so, and what what were some of the biggest challenges you faced as a rep? I know at one point, uh, I think it was two thousand two. You know, we were kind of on the brink, and uh, Todd Pratt was a teammate of mine. And mm-hmm. Pratt, you know, he was very outspoken. Sometimes a little frustrated with how things were presented in spring training. And you know, back then, of course, way before social media took off, it was a lot easier to keep it in house, right? You can kind of okay. But at one point, he just got upset, and it was something you know, legitimately understandable, like the concern about whether the Players Association was more concerned about the star players. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so we had to talk about, like you said, defined benefits, all these things that we all players were going to be beneficiaries of. But uh, right. he, he kind of went off in the, in the press that day, and then I called him. And that's how it was back then. I picked up the phone and said, hey, man, you know, I appreciate it, but you, you got to keep it in-house. If there's an issue, just come to me. We could sort it out. You know, we need to hear your your voice, but we don't want to go public. And he was cool. He was like, all right, you know, I get it. You know, that was like a understanding. But today with social media, it's so tough. So, you know, what have been some of your challenges that you remember facing? Yeah, it, see, that wasn't one of my challenges. Social media changed the game. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't I can't even relate to that um, being a player rep, because when I got older, I let some of these younger guys you know, I was always into it, but I let the younger guys, because they were the future. So if you get a guy that's 24, 25, two or three years in the big leagues, you know, you want them to be the player rep so they can grow with the system and um, and they can, you know, learn on the way. I was just a part of it and wanted to help out. But just social media, it's hard. If you say something in that those meetings and it gets to the, it's going to get out there somehow. You know, whether it's social media, Twitter, you know, Instagram, all those platforms, um, it's hard to keep a secret. If a guy feels a certain way, he's going to say it now. They're tweeting it out. They're they're talking to the media uh, and different things like that instead of keeping it in-house and having a discussion with your teammates. That's what we did when I was a player rep. They came to talk to me and sat down and asked those questions. I would write them down and go back to Don Fear or, or Michael Weiner, God rest his soul, um, or, or Tony Clark and I go back to those guys, ask those questions, and he relays some some answers if he if he has them, and, and I I bring it back to the players. So um, we we had a we were more of a close knit um, a group player union. Today, I, when I read a lot of this stuff, they're going against each other and challenging each other. That's scary, you know. You don't really want that. You want to keep that in house. Whatever's going on with with the players union, you don't say anything about it. So, Doug, what I take from that is uh, he Tory didn't run a loose ship like Doug. Yeah. See, his players were he kept them in line. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't go rogue on them. Yeah, no, yeah, like, you guys. Well, yeah, Todd went rogue on me, but we we talked. I mean, I I had to do an interview at one point. I didn't have to, but I I elected to talk to a local reporter in Philly about the whole state of everything. And I was fair to the owners. I And and, I, and next thing you know, the, a few days later, I got a call in the locker room. So I, I'm like, who's calling me? And, and they were like, oh, it's it's uh, 
David Montgomery, you know, and you know, Montgomery is a great, great person, rest in peace. And uh, I saw, I was like, am I traded or something? Because that was the other nerve wracking thing about you're, you're the rep. Are you like, if you're slumping, they might ship you out of town, you're rabble rouser. So, um, but he called and he thanked me for showing both sides of the coin and that I was, it was a fair interview, which was like surprising. Uh, because that yeah. you never know what you don't know your front office in that way or ownership group that well and yeah. you know so it could be jerry reinsdorf it could be you know who knows what the the tone is so that that also put an extra pressure uh yeah. would you say tori on being a rep <laughs> oh yeah man because the front office you just you just don't know when you're repping the players and then you have terry ryan the general manager at the time or, would come talk to me about different things. And I'd be like, I don't want to hear it, <laughs> you know, or whatever. <laughs> or, and, uh, or, you know, he, he'll just say, you should try to do this. And I'd be like, he might have a good point, right? <laughs> but I was like, I'm not listening to you. you you're manipulating me. You might be trying to, you, you, you're, we might call him in the hood a snitch. But <laughs> so I just kind of, I just kind of like, um, didn't really talk to Terry Ron about any of that stuff. I go to him and talk, personal stuff, how to wipe. Once he started talking about, so what are you guys going to do? I'm like, hey, man, I can't hear you. I walk away. And Terry will just laugh. So uh, we, we had that kind of understanding. And and But during, during those times, it's kind of tough because when you're the rep, people really are frustrated and they come and it's kind of like they unload a lot of their frustrations on me like I was the, the one that's making these rules, you know? And uh, so... It was it was tough being a, a player rep. I'm pretty sure you know about that, Doug. When they come to you with all their frustration or their concerns, and and they come to you as if you were the one that made implemented this, you yeah. know. So yeah. you have to go back and get that information and bring it back to them and and try to explain to them. I feel like if you can't explain something to a five year old, then you don't really know about it. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. That's what I try I, to I, do. They used to just say in Philly, it's all Glanville's fault. Yeah, that always right, worked. Right, they just <laughs> on so, me. So, 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 Tori, let, let's pivot here. Last week, an amazing thing happened. The Boston Red Sox released a statement about racist behavior at Fenway Park. And part of that statement said this, quote, Tori Hunter's experience is real. If you doubt him because you've never heard it yourself, Take it from us, it happens. That was the end of the quote. They issued that statement in response to some recent remarks from you that you always had a no trade clause to Boston because of how you were treated there. So tell us, man, what did that statement mean to you? Well, I mean, might have been a little too late, but um, I definitely think that they're listening. They hear it. They see it. You know, that unconscious sense of superiority, which it's like you don't really see what we go through. Just imagine. I, I know Doug probably experienced it. I've experienced it. And yet we still go out there and play and still perform at a high level. And, but at the same time, you have anger. And and not just in Boston. It's in, you see things that it might not even be a racial slur, but you see something and you know is what it is. It's reason why this didn't happen because maybe because I was a different ethnicity or different skin color. And you see these things your whole life and you still just kind of put your head down and you go, you can't let anybody, 
you know, uh, ruin your dream or stop what you're trying to accomplish, your mission. And, and that's, that's pretty much what we did as African-American players. We play with a whole bunch on our shoulders and a whole bunch of anger, but we didn't really act on the anger. And, uh, and I won't say all of them. I will say majority of us. And when you go to Boston and you play, you heard it a lot. And, and I was just so frustrated when I played those guys. I played with intensity. I tried to do everything, do the most. I played really well in, in, in Boston. And every time I played against them, I played well, uh, probably due to a lot of stuff that was in my head from years, pre- previous years. And, um, um, and so I just kind of made that decision of a no trade clause because I couldn't see my wife in that, in walking down the street and something, someone called her that name because this is not a Red Sox issue. This is not the players issue of the Red Sox. It's really not Boston Red Sox fans issue. It's a family society government issue, you know? Um, and I, I think it's just, you know, when I saw those kids out there in the outfield saying those things, and you see grown-ups just throw their hands up, laugh, and turn me, tell me to turn around while the kids are saying these things. That's what, that's what I looked at. I looked at this whole thing like, this is a, a family issue. This is a society. This is an a issue that's in this area. So I looked at my family. I didn't want my family around that. So that's what I saw. And, you know, I made a, a permanent decision on a temporary situation. And it... It was happening for 30 minutes. It was happening for nine innings. But, it, you know, when I went home, I made a permanent decision not to go there and play. And I really always watched Fenway Park on TV. But, you know, when you see that when you're there and I heard about it before I became a uh, when I was in the minor leagues and Kirby Puckett and all these guys would be like, oh, you think that's bad? Wait till you go to Boston. I'm like, what is he talking about? Until I saw what he was talking about. Yeah, I mean, Tori, I I know um, I I was so interested in baseball history early on, and I had a neighbor growing up in New Jersey, uh, Mark Anderson, if you're out there, who loved the Red Sox, and we used to play wiffle balls. My brother's contemporary, so about seven years older, but we played all the time in our front yard. And uh, I remember Jim Rice's story about Jim Rice and how he was treated in spring training, and there was this like place that they would go, like some you know country club, and he wouldn't be able to to go and attend and they had all these like rules uh, around race. And I was like, that, that just stayed with me. And I was, you know, however old, 13, 12, whatever, just, but I just remember that. So I was, I was scared and nervous a little bit about Boston coming to the big leagues just because of what I heard. I mean, I knew the city a little bit, but um, that, that, and I remember the moment I was traded, I was traded for Mickey Morandini and, mm. and I was, yeah. the rumors were out there that I was John Valentine. Uh, John Valentin for the Red Sox was possible mm-hmm. another candidate. And I remember being kind of nervous about it. And But I think you make a great point about knowing the, the larger cultural component, not just Boston or Red Sox, but just this sort of larger thing. And I know Heim Bloom, who's now GM of the from the Rays, who now are the Red Sox, you know, is fairly aggressive about addressing what we're facing right now. Or what we've mm-hmm. always been facing, but in a, a modern way. So I was kind of, I was kind of moved by that statement because it, because it is unheard of. It, it, you know, um, you know, for you, it, it it probably is late for sure. Your your career's moved on to another phase. But for others, like you said, those kids to come up and say, "Wait a minute, this is not pretend here. <laughs> this is real." Yeah. Uh, and although it seems like you said, you know, 
on a basic level. A lot of people need to hear the basic level just to enter the conversation. Right, right. I, you know what? Just the I talked to Sam Kennedy. He he called me, and we we talked several times in the last ten days. And uh, man, just to hear his voice, he just so he was like so disappointed, and so hurt. And I understand, you know, you know, it's late, but when you t hear him talk, he's he's over it. He's not. I don't think he's gonna let that. You know, if it ha it's gonna happen, you really can't control it. But when it does, they're gonna have harsh punishment for it. And uh, and I, you know, you got to start somewhere. You know, I know he probably they didn't do it in the past, but they see it now. You know, they're taking the initiative to go out there and make a change right now. This is all we want. We want the change to start now, and and Red Sox are doing that. So. Um, the past is the past. Let's see what the present is going to, I mean, the future is going to look like. And I think it's going to be a lot better. I, I still want you to say you suck, Tori, or <laughs> you suck, whoever. I still, I still want you to say that. I still want you to say you can't hit, you're going back to AAA, you suck. You, I know your mother from the other night. You know, it's like, I hear all this stuff and that don't bother me. It's that one, that, that N word, that racial slur, because if you are a CEO, or the president of something or anything, and you're saying this at a ball game and you own a company, I can almost bet you you don't like nobody with my skin color and you won't let them travel up or move up in the company to become your, your assistant vice president or vice president or assistant president, whatever, assistant to the GM. They're not moving up. They're going to stay on a lower level because if you're saying that, that's in your heart. Yeah, I hear you. That don't come out unless it's in your heart. Yeah, you, you know, uh, since this came up last week, I've been thinking a lot about Adam Jones. Uh, you know, I had a, a memorable conversation with Adam about racism in Fenway and in baseball a couple of years ago. Um, and he, he, he had a famous or I guess infamous incident at Fenway himself. He's talked about it a lot. I asked him about it and he had a line that's it's still in my head. He said, you know what? Hollywood likes the story, but they don't care about the solution. In other words, he thought everybody wanted to hear about it, but nobody actually wanted to act upon it. And I wonder if you've been feeling the same way through the years about your own experience at Fenway. You know, it was talked about, but did anything positive ever come of it until last week? I mean, the last week was probably the only positive i've had you know in a while i know um I, I talked about it earlier about the twins making a change with someone that was in the organization for 20 right. 25 years and and that's all we heard even when i was in the minor leagues i heard about it and you know and he they removed him because of the new management the new mindset with derek favi and, and thad levine the, the new mindset just said, no, we're not tolerating that. We're going to have a better atmosphere. Our culture is going to be great, and I want the best from my players. I don't need them thinking about all that stuff. So eliminate them, you know, and, and that's, what, that's what they did. And I, I, that's the first, that was the first time I ever seen anybody execute on racism. First time in my life I've seen really? anybody in my whole life execute on racism. And it was Derek Favre and Thad Levine. And then for the Red Sox to say this, this is my second. Yeah. 
And, and imagine that that's all within a pretty short period of time. Um, you know, do you, do you feel optimistic from that? Man, I felt optimistic to see, you know, not the rioting, not the, the uh, destruction, but just the people out there protesting. It was young people and multiple cultures out there. And I was like, whoa, this is amazing. Like you see whites and blacks and, and Asians and Latins, they were all out there protesting for a better future. You know, these kids are gonna tell their kids, hey, this is how you do it. And that future, that, that's gonna be a great future for, for even for us, cause we're gonna be able to benefit from it. And also probably these young guys will go home when they hear their parents and, and grandparents talk about these things, they can say, no, let's, let's chat about that and have a conversation with them about us coming together. If we come together, greater things are going to happen in baseball, in sports, uh, in life. We just got to come together and be as one. Love is not a feeling. Love is an action. It's all about taking action. And that's what uh, those protesters did, uh, you know, during this racial divide. They got out there and took action. That's what love is. Love is not what you tell me. Love is what you show me. Well, we need to have a lot more action in our, in in the country and in the sport. I, I actually wanted to ask you about one more thing that um, that Adam Jones talked about. I, you remember the story where he told Bob Nightingale in USA Today that baseball is a white man's sport, and uh, <laughs> yeah. we, I mean, we talked about that too. And you know, look, you guys during your roundtable last week talked about the the low percentage of African-American players, but Mm -hmm. he was talking about owners, GMs, team presidents, managers. He even mentioned the media. And there hasn't been a lot of change on that front, too. Um, We've got a Mm -hmm. long way to go. Now, you're working right now in a front office for your team. Do you see that as some evidence that, that any of this is changing? And what has to happen next? Well, I see it as evidence that the twins are changing. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. that's that's what I see. The twins are trying to make a, a shift. And you saw them the other day donate twenty five million to um I think Black Lives Matters. And uh so uh they're they're taking action and that's all I can really speak for. I don't know about other organizations, I don't know about major league baseball. Um I still think there's some some racism there or not, I think it's some unconscious bias there because there's no black utility player. There's every African-American in the league, almost every, I say 90% of them, I'm not going to say every last one of them because I might be wrong, but 90% of them, they have to be stars. You can't be mediocre. That stereotype is still up on us. Like these guys are athletes. If they're not the best, we're not getting them to the big leagues. So, um, and that little thing right there, nobody even talks about. Wow. You can't see it because you're not thinking about it. You know what I'm saying? There's no epiphany. You got to have an epiphany to wake up and see it. Stuff that we've been talking about in the game a long time. I don't know if you remember me on HBO saying 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I said baseball is going to be below 10% African-Americans. I got, I got backlash from that. 
I said, it might be so low that we might not even be in the game. And I don't know if you remember people saying something about when I said um, Latin players, you know, they, they go get those Latin players in, in Dominica and you might think they're African-American, but they're not. You know, I'm, I'm saying they're black, but you might think they're African-American when you're watching on TV, because when I go back to my neighborhood, they say, yeah, Somebody came to me and said, hey, yeah, Vladimir, da, 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 where is he from? Is he from California? I'm like, no, he's from Dominica. <laughs> you know, seriously, right. they, they, wow. they said, and I'm wow. like, so they might think that they're playing. They're not African-American wasn't playing. So I said they, that, that Dominicans, I was on their side, and I said they should go through the draft. At that time, they weren't going through a, a draft or anything like that. I don't know if they're still going through a draft. No, no, I said they should go through a draft so they can get paid. Instead of going to get those guys for a low amount, I said a bag of chips, but that wasn't me. Somebody else said at the roundtable discussion with Bob Nightingale. And I said, yeah, I guess, yeah, that's what I'm talking about right there. And so it wasn't a racial thing. It was I was fighting for my Latin player to get drafted so they can get paid more instead of getting those guys for $1,000. And if you don't pan out, it's easy to send them back. But if he does pan out, Man, it's like a great thing. I only paid a thousand dollars for this guy. I only paid twenty grand for this guy. You know what I'm saying? So that's what I was saying during that time. That whole issue, and 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 that's what we stuff things that we don't really look at. We have to look at these things seriously and take a serious look and open our eyes. And that's why I always say that's why God gave us two ears and two eyes so we can listen more and see more instead of talk more. Yeah, and, and I think, Tori, you think about that is the opportunity baseball has with with that sort of that beautiful diversity, right? People are really from all over the world, all over the right. country, and we have exposure and interactions that you would you know normally not have throughout the rest of our country. Sport does that, and baseball has a, a unique position in that. And I think right now we're just feeling the first reckoning in baseball around you know, really sort of this modern discussion around race. I mean, Jackie Robinson came in, but when right before he died, he asked for a black coach. He was still talking about it. And then you had Al Campanis in 87 uh, reveal that there's still this undercurrent and underbody about uh, assumptions about race. So, you know, now, you know, you see that, that it's out there front and center, certainly, and what baseball could do. But I know every spring training, I came in and I saw people from all over the place and you have your preconceived notions about who yeah. someone may be, but then you, all of a sudden you're in a locker room, you're traveling all, and you just get a different opinion because you have exposure and, and yeah. baseball or any sport is always worried about equity within the rules and fairness and, and all those things. And it also is a team united by different people for a common goal. So I think, you know, I always thought baseball could do so much more to celebrate that to make our society better, uh, to showcase that there are so many people from walks, different walks of life trying to accomplish this goal together. Yeah, and, and that's, what, that's where we need to be as a country. I, I said this before about how um, in, our, in our locker room is so diverse. You're talking about Dominicans, Venezuelans, Cubans, uh, Asians, uh, um, Mexicans, uh, shoot, African-Americans and whites. We all come together and the leader says, we are going to win the World Series. And we go, whoa. And we all buy into it. One person late, 
One person out all night, we say, hey, man, go drink your water, do this. Let's focus, man. Get your rest tonight, whatever it may be. And everybody, no matter who it was, will grab that person and bring them in and say, let's go. And we focus on the, the mission. That's one thing we don't have in this world right now and is a World Series to play for. We all plan divided. We all plan Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, uh, all kinds of groups out there, organizations. It's organisms that work. Put us together and let's get this thing going and we'll be a better country and we'll, we'll accomplish more because we will allow uh, people to move up and use their creativity and what God created them for because all of us are beautifully, wonderfully made and we got our own gifts to, to give to the world and that's what we need to try to utilize instead of saying, no, they don't have a gift and those preconceived notions of, no, that, that gift doesn't happen. They don't do that. They don't do this. No, there's gifts there that you can use in this world. So let's utilize them. So what role can baseball play in this? Um, I mean, you, you just outlined how in baseball, people of all races, creeds, countries work together, right? Mm -hmm. how, how can baseball help lead the way toward that happening in the country is that even possible i i mean they actually jackie robinson bringing jackie robinson in actually changed the whole world exactly you know what i'm saying right. so it, it brought you brought jackie robinson in it changed the world yeah he took some heat he still got called the n-word he got death threats he, all these things right and and baseball well one guy in baseball you know, uh, and he, he Branch Ricky, he brought him in and, and allowed him to play. He took some heat. Branch Ricky, he was white and he <laughs> took heat, probably had death th threats and everything. Baseball is going to have to take that hit. If you love me, act with me. It's an action. So I, I feel like Major League Baseball can do something about it because they already have a big melting pot of different groups of people. Uh, they need to take the initiative. I'm not, a, I'm not a major league baseball owner or the commissioner. If I was, I would, but I'm not. So I don't have a plan for that. And I don't really sit and think about what's the plan that major league baseball can, can, um, can make the move on, but they can sit at the table and have a conversation with different people. It can't be 30 white guys in there. It's gotta be Latin, Asian, black, everybody in there and, and get together and say, let's have a conversation how we can spark and make this thing better. That's what it's gotta be. Yeah. Seat at the table. I mean that, you know, and that's, you know, you look back to some of the most controversial moments, you know, just recently, like, you know, whether Prada or someone puts out a, an advertisement and it's got something completely insensitive. You're like, who's in the room? You kind of ask that question, like who's in the room? And, and I'm not talking about color by numbers. I'm talking about real power and influence and representation. And I think right. that goes back to what Jay was talking about, just leadership and being in the room and having, you know, you said special assistant. Well, there was a period where that was kind of a, a, a way around the Selig rule. I mean, sometimes unintended, but uh, when you handpick someone to say, hey, you're going to be groomed to be maybe our next manager, you didn't have to go through the same channels as the Selig rule to make sure that there was mandated uh, candidates of diverse candidates in your interview process. Uh, so, you know, so it's, sometimes, you know, one thing I've thought about that could be really interesting is the analytics 
we're all in this analytics world now in baseball. Why wouldn't they use that to analyze their own organizational structure? Look at how they've made choices. Look at their leadership. Look at their diversity. Are they achieving certain goals, set milestones? They have all these brilliant minds reshaping the game on shift defenses. And uh, why not turn that towards uh, something larger than just the sport and use that, that sort of insight to inform the world? Baseball could lead. They can. They've done it before. Uh, here's another opportunity. Hey, man, that is that is awesome, Doug. I, I never thought about that. That's something that I probably bring to the table, and I say it's called the Doug Glanville rule. <laughs> 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 That's pretty awesome, actually. I, I love everything about it. Yeah, use that data. Use the big the analytics and, and all of the um, analytical guys they bring in every day. They do it for the organization. Make the organization. They probably do it some some organizations, but I never heard it put that way. Well, they do. That was pretty. They, they do it in economics. They, they they always model stuff all the time or numbers. But it, you know, it'd be interesting to see it in like a cultural identity way. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I I have I have faith that they can they can influence quite a bit. You know, it's uh, I know we're all trying to figure it out, but I but I'd be curious to see what they yeah, can do. Yeah, we got to have yeah. some advocacy, and I think Major League Baseball they be become an advocate of, of this whole change because they, they have resources and influences and different things like that. You know, they just have to jump on and, 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 and make it happen. And hopefully uh, they do it in the near future because Major League Baseball is one of the reasons why this, this country was shaped the way it is. It got better. Still not where we need to be, but Major League Baseball jumps in and do what they have to do because of so much diversity. I think they, uh, they get their name back. You understand know what I'm saying? We need to get our name back in Major League Baseball. You, you only get one Jackie Robinson moment because that's a unique moment in time. Yeah. But we, but the stuff that you guys are talking about, I mean, Doug, what you just laid out, I think it felt like a lot like what Theo Epstein was thinking when when he talked about what a week or so ago um, how he, he's he's failed. He's failed in this, that he he's hired way too many people who look like him and live the same life as him. And that has to change. I think, what, Tori, what just happened with you in Boston, that was a moment of change. That was a transformational moment that can make an impact. And, you know, I a big part of this is the conversation that we're having right now, that has to continue because I feel like the world is different over the last few weeks, that mm-hmm. this is not something that's going away. This is going to be an ongoing conversation and an ongoing effort to change the world. So you guys can be part of that conversation and that effort. Baseball can be part of that conversation, of that effort. We all can. I mean, I don't know how big a part of it that that can be, but doesn't that feel like that's that momentum? We've got to keep that going. You know what? Um, because of COVID nineteen, and and this is my 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 thought is my opinion. It might not be the truth, but. But I come from a spiritual background, biblical background, and I, I think God allows things to happen, allows them to happen so we can slow down sometime. And the whole world slowed down. We're at home, stay in place, and you're home 
and your mind is not racing so much, right? And when you be still, you can see things and you can hear things better. And then number one issue in the world is racism. That's the number one issue in the world is racism. And I think God allowed us to sit down, be still, and then all that stuff with George Floyd and uh, Amar Arbery and um, um, Breonna Taylor, you keep naming and something happened just a couple days ago. All these things happened, but everybody was able to see it and understand it and hear it and listen to it. They're like, wow, because they're not so busy. You know, everybody's so busy trying to be a star or entrepreneur or make money, make millions, do these things. I'm moving too fast. I forget about my family. And you're moving too fast. God made us be still. And the number one issue we have in this country is that. And we saw it. All races saw it. Like we saw it firsthand. We still continue to see it. So you're like, wow, we got to do something about it. Because if we were busy, it would have never happened. They, they would have threw it under the bus and said, oh, it wasn't racism. Just like my, if I would have said those words while the season was going, then they would have got destroyed. It was like, he's a liar. He's a that, right? It's, it's just the way it goes. And they, Sheffield was a liar. He was a militant black guy. Uh, Adam Jones was a liar. And he's sitting there telling you the truth. I, w- I said it years ago, and nobody believed it and said they lied. I was lying. So it's kind of like because of our stillness right now, we were able to see and hear and listen. Yeah. Oh, what a great point. No, I hear you, Tori. I mean, that that is uh, so true. And, and it's taken that to sort of think about it. I guess the question then is, and I, I know I feel this way, I'm a little bit nervous that when those distractions come back, whenever they may be, and of course, we're all wanting to be able to get out of this health crisis. Um, mm-hmm. How confident do you feel about, you know, the amnesia kicking in, right? You know, oh, we're game's on, we were playing, you know, and then we kind of, you know, shift back away from some of these issues. I, um, I, think, I think a lot of people are starting to wake up. I won't say everybody. I think a lot of people, even my age and older, are like, man, and they're looking at, they're looking at themselves. They're checking themselves. You will be, you'll be amazed at how many phone calls I've gotten and, and they're sympathizing. I'm like, no, don't sympathize. Don't don't apologize. You don't have to apologize. You were nice to me, you know. And they just they just kind of. I when I was when COVID nineteen hit, I sat back and say, all right, I start assessing my whole life. How are my finances? How's my relationships? How's my business skills? And you know how how's my emotions? And you know how's my spiritual walk? I start evaluating my own life and trying to make sure I'm I'm good in all those areas. I think at this moment, people are starting to evaluate their lives, which is going to make a big change in their lives. And to see all these young people in the world get together from different backgrounds and different races, and they fighting for a great cause, I, I definitely think we'll be better in the world. Now, Major League Baseball, when it gets busy and that money starts flowing, flowing in, I can see that getting pushed back. That, I can see that. Well, I, I hope both of you guys will continue to speak and be part of this because it doesn't get much more eloquent than you two. Uh, Tori, on the way out, uh, I do want to ask you a question that doesn't relate to any of this because uh, <laughs> a, a few months from now, you're going to be on the Hall of Fame ballot, man. And I, I think you have a case. Uh, you played 19 years in the big leagues. I'm going to give you a list of all the men in history 
with 2,200 games played in the outfield and nine gold gloves. Mays, Clemente, Griffey, K-Line, Ichiro, and you. Uh, (laughs) One more thing. You finish your career with 50.7 wins above replacement. You know, there's a Hall of Famer from Minnesota named Kirby Puckett who finished his career with 51.1. So let me ask you, do you think you're a Hall of Famer? <laughs> oh, tough question. Well, the way the way you put it, oh yes, but I, yeah, you're voting for you. <laughs> hey, you know what? This little kid from Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and he had a chance to get out of poverty, become a man because of baseball, uh, uh, meet many people from different aspects of life, different walks of life, play the game hard every day and learn different skills, you know, and, and baseball has given me, given me a lot. And if I get to the Hall of Fame, that's great. I, so I'm, I'm going to be thankful and I'm be grateful. If I don't get in the Hall of Fame, man, look, the relationships I built and a little boy from Palm Bluff, Arkansas, and you said, Tory might be in the Hall of Fame. Hey, enough said. <laughs> <laughs> enough said. Well, uh, Tori, look, any day that we get to talk to you, we're having a hell of a day. So uh, th- thank you so much for joining us, man. You're welcome to visit us here in Starkville anytime. <laughs> we'll send you the GPS coordinates. <laughs> Just stop on by. Man, I swear to you, man, I feel like if I'm when I come there, I'm going to meet Superman. Uh, all right, let's not get carried away. We are all you supermen, might, yes. You, yeah, you might meet Glanville. But, uh, Glanville, yeah. That's the all closest right, we get. Thank you guys for having me, man. I really appreciate talking to both of you. Got much respect for both of you, and, and uh, you know I love you, man. You guys stay stay safe. Yeah, man. Back at you. You too. Yeah, much love, Tori. Right. Take care of yourself, man. Appreciate it. All right. I'll see you guys. All right. Dag. It's time for one of our favorite parts of every podcast, listener trivia. It's our way of involving you, our favorite listeners in this show. And we'll tell you how that works after we get this one wrong. But first, here's our question. Comes from a listener named Cody Gregory, whose Twitter handle is at C-O-D-G-R-E. Now, Cody brilliantly deduced we might be looking for a Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa question after that 30 for 30 on those two on Sunday night. Good call, Cody. We picked your question. Here is what he asked us, Doug. He asks, after McGuire and Sosa, who else finished in the top five of Major League Baseball in home runs in 1998? Got it? Yeah. Uh, so, Doug, if I'm doing the math correctly, we need three more names since McGuire and Sosa are two of them, right? <laughs> yeah. I think we're okay. Yeah, three. Yeah. three yeah, two plus three is five. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, Matt, we, we, we passed this math exam. Uh, so, Ken Griffey Jr. is obviously one of them, the 30 for 30. The 30 for 30 talked about him several times. Yes. So, we're going to put Griffey down. So, now we need two more. Ooh. Lots of possibilities. Uh, I, I'm going to go with two guys who I know had 50 homer seasons somewhere in that range in the 90s. So I'm going to say Greg Vaughn and Brady Anderson. Ooh. I know they did it. I'm just not sure the years. 
But like this, I mean, this is your time. You know this, right? It could be all kinds of guys. Larry Walker, I thought about. Vinny Castilla. Oh. Albert Bell. Oof. Our man, Jim Tomei. Yikes. Uh, Juan Gonzalez, I thought about. Like, yeah. Doug, what do you think? This was your era. You played in the league. Help me. Yes. Well, for new listeners, uh, everyone has learned that anything happened in my era, I have no idea. I have no clue whatsoever. <laughs> so that's where I oh, really yeah, I fall to the bottom. You're a big help. So, um, yeah, I was, I mean, I was in the throw. Yeah. Jeff Bagwell, maybe, or, uh, yeah. So Juan <laughs> Gonzalez sounds pretty good too. Uh, so, all right. So if I had three different ones and we put our heads together, we, we might get it. <laughs> so I like, I, yeah, Greg Vaughn was a good one. Um, all right. So I'll, I'll go just, you know, I'll go Juan Gonzalez. Uh, I'll go Bagwell and I'll go, Ooh, he said Tommy. Yeah, he was really good. I'll go Jim Tommy. Okay, so we got a whole bunch of answers. <laughs> <laughs> we've got Griffey, we've got Vaughn, we've got Brady Anderson, we've got who Bag the heck did you answer? Bagwell. <laughs> Bagwell. Juan yeah. Gonzalez. Juan Gon. And what was the other one I mentioned? It was something you made. Yeah, I don't <laughs> you know. You got your own answer? Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's, it's, it's my error. Remember, to just draw a blank here. Yeah, it doesn't matter. We got it wrong. Let's, <laughs> let's bring the outgoing evil mayor of Starkville, Cam, in here. Well, this is such oh. a massive dartboard. This yeah, is ridiculous. He's throwing darts left, <laughs> left and right here. It's uh, <laughs> what the, we do. The preceding three after McGuire and Sosa, Ken Griffey Jr., who hit 56 home runs and 98 for the Mariners, yep. Greg Vaughn with 50 for the Padres, and then Albert Bell, who oh. had 49 with the White Sox. Oh, and man. Albert Bell, why don't we listen to him with the Bell Knoll against the Kansas City Royals as he racked up his 50th home run in 1995. A swing and a drive! Deep left! Way back! Gone! Albert Bell, the first man in baseball history with 50 home runs, 50 doubles, and what a joyous jogger on the bases for Albert Bell. God, I love listening to the great Tom Halton, the voice of the Indians. Yeah. Uh, and Albert did not hit 50 in 1998. Uh, as the mayor said, he hit 49. 49. He didn't even play for the Indians by 98. He was with the White Sox by then. But you know what didn't change? Uh, Albert always had a way of complicating life for us trusty members of the media. And <laughs> here we go. I think he just did it again, Doug. <laughs> yes, he did. That's like, yeah, I think White Sox, I just thought he just fell off after that. But uh, obviously not. And, uh, yeah, I think we have the same birthday. I want to say his birthday, August 25th. I have to look that up there. Yeah, I know. But, uh, don't, yeah. Don't know these things. <laughs> but does he, well, he would have gotten the birthday trivia question. Right? Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> All right. One thing we try to do in this segment is use the trivia question to inspire a topic for the show. So this week it's easy. Obviously we need to talk about Sosa and McGuire. And, uh, I mean, just so you know, in case you forgot, Doug, I followed Mark McGuire around that season on that pursuit of Roger Maris. I saw him hit 17 home runs, okay? And I, a, a couple years ago, when I was hosting the Baseball Story show on Stadium, uh, and that paid off because he sat down with me for a, a really memorable conversation. I urge you to go find it on YouTube if you'd like to hear it. Uh, he was very relaxed and forthcoming, uh, much less guarded than he was in that 30 for 30. But, Doug, you played against... 
Mark McGuire. You played with Sammy. So I'm curious what you thought of that 30 for 30. Just so you know, I enjoyed watching it, but I was actually disappointed in it. Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it because, you know, the nostalgia and just thinking back to that time, there's so much you you kind of remember, and then there's the parts that you forget. And I thought they kind of connected some of those dots, you know, because, you know, just sort of following through this home run march through the season. Although I would have loved to see myself run to center field wall and look up at another Maguire <laughs> home run or Sosa. <laughs> but uh, yeah, wait a second. How do they do that whole 30 for 30 and neither of us ever showed up? Yeah, I was like, wonder. I know my neck, at least a neck brace or something they could have had, you know, watching me look up. I think he hit three in Philly at one start that season. But um, oh, yeah. Yeah, we've talked about, I think it was the opening week. I mean, so many Maguire home runs, I could be mixing up years. But I know <laughs> the, the opening week that Godzilla was going, uh, debuting in the theaters. I was like, well, it, sounds, it looks like Godzilla debuted a little early here in Philly. <laughs> Three home runs, upper deck, I mean, off of a curveball. Like, come on. So, um, yeah, so I thought, um, but I know at the end, you know, I don't want to, are we spoiler alerting here? I don't know. I guess we should let people know. But, you know, sort of bringing in the PED steroid kind of later, um, I guess in retrospect, it became such a primary story. And, you know, you think about all the things that McGuire did, whether it's, you know, uh, engage the Maris family and and then just Sosa. You know, there's so much swirling around them since that time. So it became more of a story of forgiveness and and reconciliation. And even Sosa didn't, you know, hasn't really resolved it with the Cubs yet. So, no. um, yeah. So I think it, you know, it just it had the numbers, you know, just sort of watching through it. But it was it was kind of edgy and and in a sense of kind of heavy from a McGuire standpoint. Even though such a the country came alive, you could feel that at least the way it was set up was very. Uh, you know, had like a heaviness to it. And so you didn't feel yeah. like like joyous occasion. It was like, oh my yeah, goodness. Let, let, me, let me jump in here because that's exactly what bothered me about it. That was like, that was a crazy saga to cover. I mean, if they're going to, if they were going to take us through the ride, which was what they really set out to do, then jump on the roller coaster, man, because some wild stuff happened and they never even mentioned it. Like he broke that billboard hanging from the center field <laughs> upper deck in St. Louis. It was 545 feet from the plate. Never showed it. Never mentioned it. Uh, remember they put up that section in the left field upper deck and called it Big Mac Land. And like five minutes later, he hit a ball up there <laughs> in a game. Uh, we had all the people who showed up because this was not just a baseball story. You know, MTV came, Barbara Walters came, the prime minister of Japan wrote him a fan letter. Um, Bruce Springsteen showed up to, he was leaning against the cage for the, the night he hit number 60. Bruce Springsteen <laughs> was wild. Uh, he had the two, three Homer games, uh, one of which was in Philadelphia. And uh, it's, you know, it's so funny, Doug. I decided I wanted to look up that game. And I found a quote in my story from this player on the Phillies named Doug Glanville. <laughs> Want me to read you your quote? Yeah, I'd be curious. <laughs> <laughs> this is what you said. This is a Doug Glanville special here. You said, they need to start changing the measurement system for them. Using feet is getting too ridiculous. <laughs> Quarter miles would be good. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but there were so many great quotes about him. But I wanted to also make the point. He wasn't as difficult to cover as he was made out to be. 
He was not a guy who would sit there every night in the dugout or the interview room and just dazzle us with one-liners. But I'll tell you what, I figured out what that was about. It didn't take me that long. He was not on a very good team, and he was trying to be a good teammate. And he was just embarrassed that no nobody in the media seemed to care about anyone else in the room. Right? So he didn't want to upstage everybody. That's why he picked his spots. But, like... You could walk walk up to him in the locker at his locker and chat. I did that quite a bit. He was normally pretty amiable. I, I came to like him and I really appreciated how he treated the people around him. And that included the Maris family, as you mentioned, as they showed in the 30 for 30. But here's like the biggest thing I wanted to ask you. Uh, there was an electricity around that story every single night, unlike any baseball story that I was ever a part of. So I thought at the time, wow, this is the greatest story I ever covered. But now, obviously, it, it feels different. So I ask this all the time. What do I do about those memories? Am I still allowed to remember that feeling you'd get watching that guy walk to home plate? The flashbulbs were going and the, the stadium shook every at bat. It was unforgettable, man. So am I supposed to wipe that out of my memory bank now that we know what we know? I know the record doesn't mean what we thought it meant, but what do the memories mean? Your thoughts, Doug? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I thought Bob Costas captured this sort of, you know, dilemma, right? The, the ethical dilemma and the, and the historical dilemmas. I, I think you, you do look at history differently, and that's part of our journey in life, right? We, we have the, almost a second bite of the apple to go back and revisit things as our lives change. And it's not just because new information about PEDs or something like that. It's also just how we grow as people. Like I have four kids since that time, so I see that very differently just from my life and lessons I'm trying to impart on my kids and, and just how I engage and view sacrifice and all that changes in and of itself, let alone sort of actual scientific information or admissions and things like that. But when I was part of it, I mean, it was, I was a kid again. I mean, I was always enjoying the game and joy, but that's what he did. He made major league players feel like you were back in the sandbox sitting there before batting practice just to watch this guy. And we all came out early we didn't stretch. We just watched McGuire hit. I mean, I remember going to Bush Stadium and, you know, those flags out there, the retirement flags. And I mean, oh, they, yeah. you know, I, I would have to hit a ball as far as I could, then get a golf club with a driver, then get the ball <laughs> after it landed and drive in the golf cart to get it to how far he was hitting. It was so ridiculous. And yeah, I mean, what we know now, but there's something about, you know, I wrote an article for the Times called Seeing is Disbelieving, right? It, it's just, it's not even belief. It was so unbelievable that that awe-inspired level of what you are looking for in a major league life comes back to you. Because, you know, although you see greatness every day at the big league level and you're playing every day and you're part of this magic, you still love to be awe-inspired. You still love that feeling. And, and it's sometimes missing because, you, you know, you play 162 games, it's August, you're 30 games back. And, and every time McGuire came through, it was a show. And uh, you know, so just how far he hit it is one thing. I, I remember a ball hit. And to this day, I still don't even know what happened. I was playing left field at Wrigley uh, and uh, for the Cubs at the time. And McGuire's up and he hits a ball. It was like kind of up and in. And he hooked it so far behind him 
that he basically pulled it over the left field stand. But it was one of those wriggly days of sunny wind was a million miles an hour. And I, I gave, I was already in the warning track anyway. And I kind of ran in and I was like, there's no way I'm getting this ball. First of all, it's like 30 rows deep into the parking lot, let alone. And the, it was so high that the wind actually blew it fair. <laughs> and I remember, you know, infield was like, what in the world just happened? Like, I mean, he could have gotten a triple. That's how high this guy hit the ball. And you're just sitting there just amazed at what this guy's doing. So, you know, you think about what, um, you know, his capabilities are. Uh, from the standpoint of just the the magic of it, and you, it's hard to you can't really let that go. It was it was unusual, even if you felt like you were duped or something like that, to see a ball hit that far. Uh, just the pure distance of it, let alone the consistency of doing it, it was was awe inspiring. And and like you said, McGuire was uh, someone you talked to. Every time I came to first base, he always had something good to say. He knew what you were doing. He loved baseball. I'd see him in the batting cage early on and, and he'd talk shop and share ideas. I mean, I mean, I saw him a lot, just, you know, playing the Cardinals and all. So, uh, so there's, there's just that. And, and it's not, it's not a perfect fit. Like we're conflicted in, you know, in, you know, we're not, we have this and you could be that. You could be this great, inspiring person and have cut corners and, and uh, it still can kind of work in concert. Yeah. You know what? Let's talk some more about this next week because you could do a whole show just on this. Uh, the first story I ever wrote for the athletic was I asked Mark McGuire, could you have hit 70 if you had never taken PEDs? And he said, Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, so that's a whole, that's a whole discussion in and of itself, but um, all I know is he he did some stuff, and we saw some stuff, and we felt some stuff back then that meant something. It just looks different now in the rearview mirror. Okay, one more thing before we go, Doug. We need to say thank you, but also sayonara to our mayor, Mayor Cam. Let's bring him in here. Is it true that you are now? the outgoing mayor of Starkville. Apparently there was an impeachment trial we missed or something. Uh, well, no, I wouldn't say impeachment <laughs> trial. Uh, as you and I conversed over text, it's it was merely me realizing that uh, there, there are other pursuits and other opportunities, and I need to fulfill those opportunities and, and see what other uh, opportunities are, are out there for me. So I'll be relinquishing my duty as mayor and passing it along to uh, whoever is unfortunate enough to come upon it. <laughs> You know, I'm feeling, I'm feeling a little Harry Potter-ish right now because every year Harry Potter gets a new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. <laughs> and, you know, I wonder what's going on here, what's happening. Uh, but I guess you haven't cast any spells, so I guess that's okay. He, he's suggesting that there are greater opportunities than being mayor of Starkville. Uh, I'm oh. I'm just surprised you guys aren't spellbound by the great mayoral job that I've done. I think to an extent there there has to be some wizardy Harry Potter tie there. Yeah, I, I was thinking of a word, but spellbound wasn't it. <laughs> uh, look, you've had a spectacular term in office. Uh, you have to put up with a lot more aggravation than most mayors, just because you're two citizens of Starkville would happen to be us. <laughs> but, but it's been an honor. It's been a pleasure. You've elevated our show. You've elevated the quality of life here in Starkville. And so in recognition, we are hereby appointing you as mayor 
emeritus. <laughs> that means you can stop by anytime. Maybe they'll even let you stay in the Ken Rosenthal suite at the inn at Starkville. Oh, man, I don't know if I have clearance for uh, Ken Rosenthal suite, considering the amount of times he's been on here and all the great work he's done. But Doug, Jason, it's been an absolute privilege and honor, and this has been a fantastic ride. And I know this show will continue to grow and make leaps and bounds with with you two continuing to give a, a great name to Starkville. So thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, thank you. Thanks to you. And thank you, you are welcome to, uh, to visit us and contribute to this madness any time. Anytime. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's going to do it for this week's jam packed edition of Starkville. Uh, let's remind you again, Starkville is now available in its entirety, absolutely free everywhere you get your podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and follow Starkville on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, pretty much everywhere you find your podcasts. And of course, that also includes the Athletic app and the Athletic website. Also, if you'd like to read our sparkling work or the sparkling work of any of our amazing writers, there's still no better sports writing being done anywhere than in the Athletic. And we are still offering a 90-day free trial so if you have thought about subscribing, you can try us out for the next three months free by going to theathletic.com slash 90 free days. Also remember, you too can be part of this podcast and achieve those 15 seconds of fame we just bestowed today on Cody Gregory. You just need to submit a great baseball trivia question. We'll get it wrong, but then we'll talk about your question. We'll talk about the topic it suggests in this podcast. So you may be asking, how would I submit that question? You could always email it to starkvilleattheathletic.com, or you can do what most people do. Tweet them at us. <laughs> uh, Doug, how would they tweet their questions at you? Oh, yeah. Piece of cake. Well, I'm at Doug Glanville. Pretty straightforward. D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. And you can find me at Jason, S-T-J-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T. Just remember to hashtag your questions. Hashtag Starkville Q-S. That's Starkville with an E, Q-S. So, Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Ken Rosenthal and Tori Hunter for visiting us. Thanks to the Mayor Cam for producing and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. We'll see you next week on Starkville. Starkville.